This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. Enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. After Travis Kalanick co-founded Uber, he developed a reputation as an aggressive and ruthless businessman. In 2011, Kalanick showed off this fiercely competitive attitude on a podcast called This Week in Startups. Let's replicate to every major city in the world. It's not just U.S., it's everywhere. Right. We're going to be in you Europe, we're going to be in Asia. You do have competitors popping up now, right? In Germany, my taxi, yeah. whatever. I mean, there's a couple folks out there, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a good idea. They're going to be competitors, and we will kill them. There will be competitors, and we will kill them. And in 2012, Kalanick met his match in ride-hailing, a pink-mustachioed company called Lyft. Kalanick took extraordinary measures to try to kill Lyft at the root, measures many people in the world of business had never seen before. Ultimately, Kalanick did not destroy Lyft. Instead, many of the aggressive actions he took came back to hurt the company and even contributed to his departure. But long after his ouster, we're now seeing that Kalanick may have been right about one thing, that Uber cannot exist alongside a rival. According to some investors, neither can live while the other survives. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. And I'm Ryan Knudsen. Welcome to The Journal, a podcast about money, business, and power. It's Wednesday, July 17th. Maureen Farrell covers the battle between Uber and Lyft for The Wall Street Journal. Most companies have that you know, fierce kind of killer instinct. But Travis Kalanick was known to take it to a whole nother level. I think it's essentially entrepreneurship, startup boom on steroids. Uber was really doing all sorts of things. One of them was capital raising. He knew that cash is like the ultimate weapon to get market share, grow. And if they could raise more money than anybody else and keep their competitors from raising money, they would win. And they were going after the top U.S. investors, the top global investors, and raising tons of money. And in the early days of Uber, there was a lot of investor interest. I mean, he wasn't just going after these investors. These investors were going after him. So how was he using that to his advantage? As Lyft was raising money, he was telling potential investors, if you even want to look at our numbers, if you want to look at our term sheet, what they give out to people when you're thinking about investing, you can't invest in Lyft. You have to wow. sign away your right to invest in Lyft. Lyft's founders would go around Silicon Valley, San Francisco, out meeting investors. They would go meet with someone, someone who obviously had not signed one of these sheets yet. And then within 24 to 48 hours, those investors would get a call from either Travis Kalanick or one of their key investors who would say, hey, we know you met with Lyft. Um, you should come and meet with us. And if you don't, you won't have a chance to get into Uber ever. Were investors seeing a downside to Uber's aggressive fundraising tactics and their effort to block investors from putting money into Lyft? So there might have been downsides, but they, they really weren't paying attention. I think investors were much more focused on getting in. I think they were willing to overlook 
a lot about Uber's aggressive tactics and really just focus on, like, how am I going to get you to accept my check? Sounds like investors were generally willing to play by these unusual rules if they could just get a piece of the action. They were shocked by this. A lot of investors I spoke to said they had never seen anything like this before, but they were willing to overlook it and just fight to get a space in Uber. Why did Travis Kalanick want to block out Lyft so badly? I think what Travis was seeing then is what we're actually seeing right now, that there's this really aggressive competition both for drivers and for passengers. And with that, it's really hard to make money. Travis believed that there would be one clear winner, and when Uber was the winner, they could dictate pricing, they could dictate the terms for the drivers. That was really clear to the company's mission to sort of blanket the world and change transportation everywhere. So Travis Kalanick seemed to view this more than just beating a rival. It was really about survival of the business. Yes. The key to the long-term survival in his mind in the early days was very much being the one winner. Through our reporting, we were aware that Travis Kalanick, when he was out pitching investors and in private conversations, he was talking about this a lot. When we've talked to Uber and to people close to Travis Kalanick, we've gotten some pushback and saying, no, no, no. He always knew there were going to be many players in this. That wasn't what we got from our reporting. We heard he was very much focused on being the winner in the market. And Lyft actually saw it the same way. They, in their early pitch decks to investors, talked about it as a, quote, natural monopoly, which is essentially that the value derives from sort of owning the drivers and the people, that they would all be on one network. And so at the end of all of this, where did that leave Lyft and Uber in terms of money raising? So Uber raised more money than any U.S. startup in history. And Lyft actually also wound up raising a good amount of capital. They just had to go to kind of unusual sources, not the traditional Silicon Valley investors. There's a Japanese e-commerce company called Rakuten that they raised a lot of money from, General Motors. Probably the most interesting source of funding that they turned to was Carl Icahn. The activist investor. Yes, exactly. The famed octogenarian activist investor who's, you know, comes in unannounced, buys a stake in a company, then tries to shake up a boardroom. Yeah, I mean, companies have, like, whole workshops and <laughs> strategies around how to keep activist investors away. Yes. And here Lyft was actually turning to an activist investor for funding. Yes, and I think that definitely speaks to the desperation, the level of kind of scouring the whole globe for capital. So ideally, a startup wouldn't probably take money from an activist investor. Do you think Lyft might not have done this if Uber had not tried so hard to cut off their funding? Yes, that's right. Lyft probably would not have taken this money. Our reporting showed ultimately that they were very concerned about having him in there and having a representative on the board and were very keen to have him out. So then as this is playing out, Uber starts to stumble. Uber got into so much trouble on so many different fronts. Over the weekend, opponents of President Trump's order promoted the hashtag Delete Uber after the ride-sharing app seemingly tried to capitalize on a taxi driver strike at JFK Airport. A viral video of Kalanick surfaced where he was seen yelling at an Uber driver. Uber reportedly used a secret program to spy on Lyft. And so what happened to Travis Kalanick after all these stumbles? He was pushed out 
by the investors who fought so hard to get into his stock. So he ultimately was actually fired. So what does all of these missteps by Uber mean for Lyft? So as that was happening, little by little, they had gone from being a notable player in the market, roughly about 15% of market share in the U.S., which was significant enough. But as this happened, as more people were deleting Uber, there was more scrutiny on the company, Lyft's market share jumped to more like 30%. Wow. So that means they were getting 30% of all the rideshare rides in the United States? Yes. So Kalanick is out at Uber. And while this is going on, like, what's happening with Lyft? I mean, they're resurgent at this point. Lyft, at the same time, was preparing to go public. They both knew they were going to go out in 2019. And then it once again became kind of a race. And so Lyft was able to have its initial public offering first. Yes, it beat Uber out to the public markets. And how did it go? Leading up to the public offering, everything seemed like it was going so well. Investors seemed really, really excited. Lyft went up a lot the first day of trading. It was like a kind of a perfect first day of trading. It was such a celebratory mood. And it seemed like, oh, this is just like a huge win. We beat Uber out to the market. So they're sort of celebrating. I think it's all going well. So well. And then what happened? <laughs> it was a disaster. The second day of trading, the stock fell below its IPO price, which is pretty much one of the worst things that can happen after a company goes public. Well, so why did Lyft shares fall? So there were all sorts of fundamental questions about Lyft. You know, it was losing so much money, growth was stalling, but it didn't seem to matter when they were talking to investors. They were willing to buy in at a very high price. So that made it seem that the stock had a lot of room to go up and people would want to keep on buying. But the weird thing was there were also a lot of people making big bets that the stock was going to go down. It is not a good signal when there's a lot of people betting and taking positions that your stock is going to go down, these so-called short positions. Were you able to figure out who was placing those bets? So this takes us back to Carl Icahn. Right before the IPO, Lyft really wanted him out. And he came to them with the option that he was going to sell his stock to George Soros, another very famed octogenarian investor. He's made some big long-term bets. He's a savvy investor and for good and bad for the people that he's invested in. In the case of Lyft, they were relieved. They didn't see him as an activist like Carl Icahn, kind of the fox in the hen house. So did George Soros end up behaving like he believed in the company? Definitely not. It turns out that George Soros bought Lyft's stock while also, before he bought the stock, put a big short bet on Lyft and bet against them to hedge out his risk. And how did that affect their share price? The short put downward pressure and really hurt the stock in the early days. From what we understand, it's about $400 million of a short position that he put on. The whole IPO raised over $2 billion dollars. That's a pretty significant slice. So their savior was basically a catalyst for the downfall of the stock. What has Soros said about this? Nothing. We reached out to him and his representative, and they wouldn't comment. So Lyft's stock is tanking. Isn't that what Uber would want? No. Investors only had one company to look at before Uber that was a ride-hailing company. 
So when Lyft performed poorly, that immediately hurt Uber's chances in the public market. In the fall, they were talking to bankers, and they pitched that they would go out at a valuation of $120 billion. By the time they actually went out, it became closer to 80 to $90 billion, and then they went out on the low end of it. And then Uber went public. What happened? It was a disaster. They seemed to think the night before that it was very conservative, that it would go well above the IPO price, that maybe we'd see this pretty good pop. Then as the hours ticked by, it was getting later and later, and the numbers just keep on ticking down and down and down, and finally it opens below the price that they set, which is pretty much the worst thing that could happen. It means you mispriced it. And if you misprice it, that means that the company's just really not as valuable as everybody thought it was. Yes, even then the conservative estimate. But Lyft's bad performance wasn't the only reason things didn't go well for Uber, right? I mean, didn't the amount of money that they raised early on also cause some issues? Yeah, all the traditional investors, like the big mutual funds, they owned it. So some of them actually sat out. And it was a huge amount that they were going to raise in their IPO. And they just didn't have that much demand. Lyft and Uber are really anomalies this year. They did poorly right out of the gate, and they're still doing poorly. Uber is now hovering close up to its IPO price. Some, It's gone over it a little bit, sunk back under. Lyft is still way down, and investors just aren't that excited about either one of the companies right now. At the end of the day, you have this battle where Uber tries to box out Lyft for its funding Lyft's IPO drags down Uber's valuation, and yet all of this seemed to sort of make no difference. Like, they're still here fighting with each other. They both exist, but we're sort of living in Travis Kalanick's nightmare vision that he saw, which is neither of them are profitable. They're both competing for customers, for drivers, paying a lot to do so. And there's no clear path to profitability, and their growth is stalling out. So it's not a great situation, and it's why investors, I think, are pretty uh, wary of the companies. They're in it. They still have big valuations, but they're not soaring, and no one is making a bet that they're going to be so much bigger. So how could they ever possibly get out of this? The way that Uber is talking about getting out of it is essentially moving away from ride-hailing. They'll be in it, but they're going to diversify their business into trucking, into delivering food with Uber Eats. So ironically, sort of the way out is by competing with Lyft less or having that as a much smaller part of their whole business. Which in some ways validates the whole notion that only one of these companies can actually exist. Yes. So we really do see now, Travis Kalanick saw where this could go and what he wanted to do at the outset probably would have been really good for Uber. And it's too late now. After Kalanick left Uber, a new CEO, Dara Khosrowshahi, took over. When he's been asked about whether multiple ride-sharing companies can coexist, he's responded that he believes the ride-hailing market isn't winner-take-all. It's winner-take-most. After the break, a boss sets out to help a sick employee and learns two very important lessons. This episode is brought to you by Vonage. With Vonage Video API, your developers can easily create custom video experiences tailored to your business. 
enhance every conversation with live video, whether it's delivering faster tech support, improving customer service, or enabling interactive meetings and events. Unlock the true video potential of your business. Discover how at Vonage.com. How well do we know the people we work with every day? We share lunches, jokes, and deadlines, but are we aware of the unseen struggles we often face silently? Stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or feeling misunderstood at work. Through insight, awareness, and empathy, we can start to better see the issues our coworkers are dealing with, and that can make us and our companies healthier too. Join Holly Robinson Pete and her guests on the Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Welcome back. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. We spend so much of our lives at work, so how do our workplaces work for us? Today, how one boss rallied to help an employee during a health crisis, or so he thought. Adam Lee is the chairman of Lee Auto Malls, a chain of car dealerships in Maine. We were started by my grandfather in 1936 with seven new car dealerships and 13 used car dealerships. We currently have about 480 employees. About a decade ago, one of those employees came to Adam with a problem. As a young man, probably 25, he came to us and said, I'm going to be missing a lot of work. I found out I have cancer. And how did you feel when you heard this? I felt terrible. All these guys work really hard, and, you know, they probably work 50-plus, 60 hours a week. And so y'all get quite close. So we felt terrible. We wanted to help him. And I just said, you know, I was the boss. I'm going to keep paying him. I think what we first did is we punched him in and out when he wasn't in. But then Adam realized it wasn't a good business practice to cheat his own system. So he came up with another idea. We decided, all right, we're going to ask employees if they'd like to help. So they donated their unused sick days so that he could draw off that pool as he needed treatment or doctor's appointments or wasn't feeling well. Enough people very quickly stepped up that it covered what he needed for sick time. But, oh, probably eight or ten stepped up to, to help out this poor guy. This policy, to make it so that one employee can donate a sick day to another employee, seemed at the time like a great idea. It let this guy get a lot of time off. Adam told me that after this employee's cancer was in remission, he came back to work. Eventually, he left the company. And after that, that's when Adam got a huge shock. We found out that, in fact, he was not sick at all. What? He did not have cancer. He was never sick. Do you remember finding out and how you felt then? Yes, I do. I wanted to punch him in the face. I was so mad. I was hurt. He conned us. He conned me. He conned his fellow workers. He conned us all. And he cheated us. And it felt bad. Because we also, it wasn't just the sick pay. That wasn't the biggest issue. We felt bad. You know, we, we felt terrible for him and wanted to help him. And then to find out he was cheating us is not a, it's not a good feeling. Did you take any kinds of actions after you found out? No. We moved on. But what we did, interestingly, after that, we kept the policy. Wow. Okay, so let, sorry. So you put in place this policy for a guy who ended up lying about having cancer, and everybody was hoodwinked by him, 
And then you're like, actually, this is pretty good policy. We're going to enact it. Yeah. It's, you know, when you say it like that, in retrospect, it sounds a little ridiculous. But I still had faith it was the right thing to do. I often say in business, just because we did something and did it poorly doesn't mean we should never try it again. Listen, we have 480 people. I think, you know, 479 of them are hardworking, honest, loyal. We do anything we can to try and help them. We want to help our employees out. They help us out. Are you a CEO or founder who's adopted an unusual management technique? Or do you work for a company that's got different and creative policies? Please email us at thejournal at wsj.com. Tell us your full name and the best way to reach you, and we may give you a call to hear your story. Just a quick note before we go, this episode has been updated since it was originally published. We corrected the amount Lyft raised in its IPO. Lyft actually raised over $2 billion, not $1 billion, like we originally said. We apologize for the error. Thanks for listening. See you on Friday.